0: in the ring with eusebius
1: Eusebius mckaiser
0: should you be allowed to tweet whatever you want that is the framing question for this edition of in the ring with eusebius mckaiser it's been a while since i've had jacques rousseau on one of my platforms and he of course is a very good friend of mine who is a critical thinking and ethics lecturer and also has an interest in other areas of philosophy like philosophy of science And I love his work at the University of Cape Town because he also thinks long and hard about public dialogue and how we can improve discourse in general, uh, particularly in a time where online, and this is why we're having this conversation, we can very often simply be vicious rather than generous and uh, in the ways in which we engage each other online. And he makes it his business to do his bit as an academic to interface with the public uh, when UCT is not um, you know, keeping him too busy with way too many committee works and other duties that he has. And that's a role that he has played very well over the years. And I've invited him to come and reflect on this question of whether you should be allowed to tweet whatever you want. Jacques, as always, it's wonderful engaging you. I'm already excited. And I know the next 20 minutes will be really interesting. Thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you for the very generous introduction.
0: Now, I mean, for you and I, Without being jaded about it, there are certain arguments in philosophy, certain curricula in philosophy that are classic, that you kind of trot out generation after generation. An introduction to speech rights, for example, um, whether it's in political philosophy, in the legal department, in the politics department, philosophy department, there are some pros and cons with, that come with the idea of saying whatever you want, writing whatever you want. But Elon Musk is the news hook for why we're going back to those arguments today. When news you know, sort of surfaced that he will be purchasing Twitter, one of the big discussions was whether or not there will be fewer constraints in terms of what people are allowed to say on that platform. So let me ask the question boldly, and then we get into the minutiae as we go from there. Should you be allowed to tweet what you want?
1: No, I don't think you should. I think there's some easily justifiable constraints or limitations, and then there's a whole range of things that are far more difficult to justify. So the things that would be easy to justify restraints on would be things like uh, abuse or, or threats of violence or solicitation of... Or violence and that kind of thing. So the things that are codified in many jurisdictions in hate speech sorts of laws, and then the far more muddy sorts of areas would be things that cause offence. Because, as as you know, and as we've discussed in the past, what uh, what's caused offence is a subjective call on the part of the recipient. So it's it's you have to, in a sense, arbitrate uh, what level of offence is justified, and also arbitrate what claims of being offended are meritorious. Mm. Uh, that, that should be, in a sense, recognised. So there's there's two really tricky uh, epistemological issues there which would be uh, need to be just uh, satisfied for us to justify restraints in those more uh, fuzzy sorts of areas.
0: Okay, so broadly speaking, there should be, because people can fight about everything, but there should be some consensus that there is a category of obviously bad things that we can call speech acts that no decent person hopefully will want to see on Twitter, such as Jacques, I'm coming to your house to kill you right now. Um, And that is a speech act that hopefully should get the police immediately alerted. And if I do that kind of thing, or I threaten to rape a journalist, for example, that's the sort of thing that shouldn't be tolerated. Then there's a category that I imagine reasonable people can disagree about reasonably. But what goes into that category itself is contentious, isn't it?
1: It is indeed and I mean here you've you've alluded to what to my mind is the most important thing and I'll say it now in case it doesn't come up later on, is that all of these judgments require, you you mentioned decent people, you mentioned reasonable, (laughs) uh, so they can't be made unless people's uh, motivations are in a sense virtuous uh, or at least if they're not made on the basis of a presumed virtuous motive then any of these tools are going to get deployed in the service of justifying a particular ideology. Mm-hmm. And what we're forgetting, all of these debates, these debates, as, as you know, and as anybody who's listening who, who's on social media knows, these debates are so weaponized and people from our sorts of backgrounds weaponize their philosophical training and trot out all of those texts while forgetting that things are contextual and they were written for a certain time and that the internet did provide a great democratization of mm-hmm. discourse and, and society, but now it is by and large in the service of niche interest groups, in, and it does not create a democratic forum at all. And, and we forget that the people who are on it are a fraction of the population who are self-selected for being obnoxious, yeah. by and large, because yeah. they're on there to shout and scream at each other, not to have a reasonable discourse Mm. so that the the problem there is that the the user base is is primed to to not be those generous kind rational sorts of people that we're talking about and the absolutist free speech argument uh allows the bullies to take on pride of place in this in this playground of shouting at each other
0: the problem is both conceptual and practical conceptually it's difficult to know even where in theory one should draw the line. And practically, it's also difficult to make those judgment calls, even if you think that you've done a decent job to describe where those lines actually are. That's why I want to keep a couple of concrete examples in the conversation so that we don't lose people with theoretical reasoning. Let's take a classic, a classic example that's been debated in the European context a lot. Um, author and infamous Holocaust denier, David Irving, Um, I remember as a member of the Oxford Union, I was, with retrospect, and I still want to write about this, but I'll say it now without unpacking it. I think I was on the wrong side of that debate. There was a massive debate about whether or not he should be allowed to speak at the Oxford Union. And um, there were some students who were of the view, yes, it is abhorrent that he denies the Holocaust happened or the extent to which it is, whatever version of denialism you were spunting at the time. Uh, but let him come and speak and debunk him and embarrass him for being intellectually and morally abhorrent and show him up in public. And there was an opposing camp that thought that's way too much work. Re-inscribing the harm that families suffer whenever they hear the nihilism is actually an overriding consideration to embarrassing him in public. So if you and I were working at Twitter, should we allow David Irving or should we Pre-publication, try and stop him from even tweeting denialism.
1: So the the consideration here that I think is quite relevant is that Twitter is a space that I choose to be on of my own volition. I'm not exposed to things accidentally. Right? I can block people. I can filter them. So so you and I are both. We both be accused presumably of being woke. You you more than me, and. I, I find that a laughable pejorative in, in, in most cases, but the reason why I raise it here, now I'm going to offend people who are genuinely work, is that part of the problem is that we need to acknowledge that there are obnoxious people out there and not take them as seriously as we do. So if somebody says something grossly offensive, yes, they are bad people. They are abhorrent, morally reprehensible people. And, and you and I have both spoken about certain characters in, on South and Twitter who fit this mold.
0: Yeah. So, Jacques, I'm a little bit
1: conflicted because on the one hand, you know, I,
0: I do think there's some value, actually. Um, and that's why it took me years to grapple with my own position in relation to the David Irving, no platforming debate that happened now many, many moons ago at the Oxford Union, um, because there's, there's a part of me that that I must admit enjoys being able to expose someone's character. And, um, and I think it's important to, 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 to do that. Um, But I think the distinction that you've made, the the point is, is well taken. But then if you and I were, quote unquote, moderators, we'd have to make that judgment call. Let's bring it back to South Africa. Someone who denies that apartheid happened, for example, Um, someone who wants to use the K word. Um, If Adam Abib wants to quote the N word in full, should we allow that kind of speech on Twitter if you and I were setting policy? I think we.
1: I think we should, and I mean, I would certainly hold my nose in in, in saying that. Uh, the, the the problem here is that the problem is that there's a collision between the idea that it's a an open forum and the idea that it's a, a private uh, company, a platform, because the that distinction doesn't hold water anymore. And this this is now speaking devil's advocate against myself, because that is where the world lives that is where the culture wars occur and that sounds like it might contradict what i said earlier on about how few people are on these platforms Mm -hmm. but it doesn't because these wars are had in those spaces where um where that minority of people are so on those platforms yeah sure it's a private platform and they can make whatever rules they like and we should we should tolerate their obnoxious speech but at the same time I think it should be exposed and it should be known that I'm the kind of person that you don't want working for you and so forth. But the the real problem is how much these things can be escalated and that the the heckler's veto or the assassin's veto can end up getting pride of place in the whole whole chain of decisions. So at UCT, I mean, I, I need to preface everything with I'm a council member and therefore nothing I say reflects on what UCT might think. But there, the only thing that should be able to get me fired or disciplined is a violation of my code of conduct or values of the university. Not anything I say on Twitter, per se, and we need to cross that threshold. So if I, in discussion with you, use the K-word, but use it in a scholarly sense, uh, speaking about its origins or its history, its etymology, there will be people who try to get me fired. But they should be told, no, go away, you are being frivolous, you're misrepresenting what Jacques said. So, so, it can't be a blanket thing. Mm-hmm. And that brings us, you and I have, have both had the experience of dealing with content moderation in terms of comments to articles and things. It goes back to that same story. I mean, either you do it yep. in a full on moderated sense with clearly expressed values and principles, or you need to just draw the line at what's legally permissible and not, and allow that. The middle ground is just too complicated to defend. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think maybe unsatisfyingly we will find ourselves moving towards not having a clear-cut answer to to this initial question other than the obvious things that should not be allowed and very few people would quibble about some of what are those obvious things are but we can prescribe them even if it's the smallest but then there will be a massive list where we just won't be able to get consensus one of the things that the fallists and decolonization movement started by young activists on campus, I think rightly challenged us to rethink is what constitutes violence, what constitutes harm. And very interesting for philosophers like yourself in particular to to think through the question of linguistic harm, for example, and how a speech act can constitute psychological harm, whether or not it leaves a physical mark that shifts the boundaries as well. And that might be something that's new for someone who's 40-50 years old, because it's a shift in norms that is also a generational one, not necessarily racialized or cultural.
1: And th- th- this is such an important and, and difficult issue to unpack. I mean, I'll, let me give you a little example, like your Irving one. I mean, it's so in 2016, I think it was, uh, during part of the university's turmoil, the, the, the nation's turmoil around peace was fallen, rose was fallen and so on. I was uh, basically imprisoned in a meeting for, for many, many hours while we were trying to make a key, key decision. And I had protesters in, in my face jumping on the table in front of me with imaginary guns in their hands, waving them at me, saying, one settler, one bullet. And given my position and given things like white privilege and the, uh, the middle class confidence that one has, of course it was disturbing but it's not the kind of thing that left me uh, shook in, in the language of the day um, but it was certainly uh, grossly offensive and, and unfair to me but i understood what was going on and that these uh angers were real and justified so of course i'm not going to complain about that i would have complained if I'd been assaulted physically of course uh, as some people were uh, including our vice chancellor at the time but um I can afford to do that is my point and and your comment about how the world has changed and all has moved on is a key one and still there are ways in which we can rage at the world and here again is a fuzzy thing we can rage at the world in in a justified way but we still need to tolerate a certain amount of discomfort because that's the way that we learn the absolutist free speech way says tolerate any kind of discomfort until it becomes one of those categories we've walled off now the modern uh, protest era or the modern era of of, of language like triggering and so forth says we must tolerate nothing that we find offensive and and both of those boundaries are completely unhelpful and all of us i think need to go back to understanding what free speech is for (laughs) uh, as a way to, to start developing these norms because free speech was for letting the marginalized speak for letting voices that would ordinarily not be heard get out. It was not for uh, rich monopoly capitalists to allow wanton abuse and trolling and and right-wing nationalism and whatever it might be. That's all all it was created for. But it does, in in that old understanding of it, that is what it inevitably...
0: But here's the thing, though, Jacques, and, and I think, I mean, I agree with what you're saying and you were alluding to earlier how some of these difficult social and ethical and philosophical questions we might kick for touch by asking the lawyers to help us out at least with some legal guidance and use that Mm. as a practical way to adjudicate some of these decisions on platforms like say twitter for example in theory the law in south africa an an american journalist asked me to to, to a couple of questions around uh, I mean, just I don't know why me in particular, but I, I made a, I tweeted something about Elon Musk that a typical South African Twitter caused offence amongst what I call 1652 Twitter. And for better or worse, the thing went viral. And next thing, the New York Times um, had some interest in engaging me on it. And um, we got into a really interesting conversation around how the law handles free speech in South Africa. And I think you're right. And of course, I mean, if we had more time, you and I can both cash it out in greater philosophical detail that speech rights also exist as a way to try and maximize the possibility of falsehoods being eliminated from the marketplace of ideas. And in tandem with that, truths surfacing as someone who's interested in democratic theory i would add the additional benefit there not just for social discourse and truth as a value in itself but also that democracy is enhanced if you have more speech rather than less speech if the theory that more speech will enable us to cuss out those who are peddlers of information and disinformation and 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 truth surfaces really plays out quite well but as much as the Constitution was basically on some never again will we like the Nats did before 94, stop people from enjoying their autonomy, which includes intrinsically being able to express conscionably what you think and feel. We also have an inviolable right, and it's the only one amongst the three foundational values, which is dignity. And dignity constrains everything in the Constitution. The right to dignity is actually the only right that can't be limited, even under a state of emergency. And so there's a tension that is not a contradiction in theory, but in practice, it's hard. And that tension is that there's a presumption in favor of speech for all of your reasons and the political ones that I've added. Um, But it is constrained by dignity and the the alternative reading of what happened since 2015 with the decolonization movements is that they are challenging us to not only analyze the question of what kind of speech should not be permitted through the legal lens but through a lens such as power and harm and related concepts that are fundamentally social concepts rather than legalistic ones
1: Hmm. So the the difficulty here is is twofold. The the one is that that you were talking about the the dignity being at the heart of everything and it being an inviolable right that we have. Yes, that is exactly right, but all of these debates would be so much easier if we were able to better generate the the kind of feelings of confidence and self-worth and so forth that some of us have. And that the marginalized voices who, who are having this anger and expressing this anger could be less affected by the obnoxious folks out there who harm them, right? So that's the one thing that goes back to education. If everybody had that bedrock of of education and self-confidence, we'd have far less fighting because I would just ignore the idiots and and move on with my life. So, So we shouldn't get distracted by tinkering at the margins of legislating speech to get distracted from what is causing it at heart is that alienation, disenfranchisement, lack of opportunity, etc. If we fix that, all of this goes away. right? So so let's not fight these proxy battles at the exclusion of the core one. And the second thing, just on a pedagogical pedagogical sort of level, if you are in this case entirely correctly uh, upset at the obscene um, um, balances of power in terms of speech and how it operates, it's not entirely rational to respond to that by shutting out the criticism through things like cancel culture. So that's the other tension here. So we want to allow those voices to express their anger, but in such a way that they're still asked to make arguments for it and, and try to change people's minds rather than just shutting down the dissenting things that they don't like. And again, I think we'd agree that the overreaction is entirely justified, entirely uh, understandable that there's been this complete. 180-degree correction, but hopefully in time that will moderate and we'll be able to expose those people and respond to them without forcing them away from the debate, from the arena of of discussion.
0: I'm loath to go go around this, down this rabbit hole, because I I, I had a plan for what the final question should be, Um, and this was actually a future episode that I wanted to get into, but I, I... I just can't resist, and I know that you will be thoughtful in your response. So it's, it's more parenthetical. We can flesh it out properly on another occasion. I'll make an explicit note. Um, I think there's some, I mean, the cancel culture debate, you know, I, I want to raise the question at some point, does cancel culture really exist? And I think proponents of it don't do themselves a favor by even going along with some of them, with the idea that they are canceling, certain individuals which actually makes it easy for some people that are peddlers of hatred to come across as martyrs who have been the victims of the mad far left who are ironically enough joining forces with the far right in being intolerant of the rational center but very often someone who is Quote unquote, a victim of cancel culture is simply being held accountable for the content of their view and its impact.
1: I know, and I, I agree with you that it's vastly overstated, uh, that the extent and severity of that sort of thing is vastly overstated. I wouldn't, I mean, examples do exist, but uh, it, it certainly isn't as prevalent as people. Uh, assume it to be. And again, it only exists in a very small minority of, of, of places and happens to a minority of people who, in most cases, don't merit our attention whatsoever. We shouldn't buy their books or listen to their speeches or, or whatever it might be. But, um, I I, I don't, it's again, I think back to decency, I don't like to see even the most obnoxious people uh, pilloried and and, and assaulted on all sides and so forth. I I prefer the the more kind of Victorian shunning sort of thing rather than shame. (laughs) Which actually brings (laughs) me
0: nicely to the last question that is more a sceptical comment, I guess, from me, to which I want you to react. There's a part of me that sort of rolls my eyes at this sudden request for and we're doing it with this episode hot takes on what twitter will be like under elon musk because actually twitter currently is not exactly particularly cool there's so much online lynching that goes on there's so much online violence currently that goes on intolerance resistance to being critique today's world Freedom Day, the number of women journalists that get threatened rape threats and the supporters of even South African political parties who do that without their leaders even flinching or calling them to order um, ad hominem attacks. I mean, you and I over the years have tried to not be too boring on radio and on podcasts to try and talk a little bit about argumentation theory and and explain what, what is an argument, what is not an argument, what are poor forms of reasoning. And so there's a part of me that thinks like instead of thinking it's going to be the end of Twitter as we know it, we should actually really just be honest that right now Twitter, like a lot of online life, is not exactly an exemplar of rational and generous discourse. And just like you were saying earlier, we shouldn't be tinkering at the margins, but really asking, why is it that some people are disempowered? Similarly, we should be teaching people critical thinking like you do at UCT. And um, if we get people to be better reasoners and better interlocutors, then the rules won't be unimportant, but we wouldn't have to worry as much about them, would we?
1: So while I don't have a bad experience, that's partly due to just a a different kind of digital literacy where I can curate my feed and and ignore things that might cause me uh, aggravation. So one blocks people, one mutes people, one only follows a select group. But I do see that that is a horrible place for the majority of people. And incidentally, on on Friday, I I performed a a, a service uh, for a friend's wedding. And this was a friend that you and I both know, uh, who I only know on social media. and, And she reminded me of the delight that it used to be uh, in terms of how much conversation and discourse was possible. And, I'm, and I wouldn't mention her name now, because given the reach that this conversation might have, one knows that it will lead to abuse and so forth. But um, Twitter, just like the cancel culture, is not as bad as as people think it is. Twitter is also not this, uh, this cesspool of, of critical race theory and, and wokeism and whatever it might be. There's a balance of everything there. And um, I I do understand that it can be terrible for some, but you don't need to be on it. You can get your news elsewhere and you can choose what voices you listen to. So there's a lot of agency that's being elided when people say that this thing has has gone to hell in a handbasket and that there's no redemption available on it. I mean, you have a lot of the control in your own hands and that should be exercised.
0: Including getting off Twitter, going into communities, reading newspapers, reading books, or going to Jacques's website. What is your website?
1: It's uh, synapses.co.za. People might call it synapses, but uh, synapses.co.za. it's uh, mostly columns or old columns and occasional blog posts and things that are of interest.
0: I absolutely love your work and we need to push on with critical thinking. And um, if we improve the discourse, then a lot of the managerial questions will become less important, not unimportant, but certainly less important. Jacques, as always, I know you're very busy. Thank you so much for making time for me.
1: Thank you, Sebas. Good chat.